0: Hello. Yes, I'm. We are on. Uh, good morning. Um, hi, everyone. Is the mic on? I think so. So we have some um, change of schedule. We have to make. We are going to start with um, session six, which is targeted and responsive fiscal policy, and we are being very responsive given the need of change schedule. So we are, we are very tuned in, and we are going to go be to, from now ten to um, eleven uh, thirty, right? We'll have lunch from eleven thirty to twelve thirty, um, and then we'll come back, have session. Five originally on growth strategies in a climate change world. Um, And then we continue from there with the session seven at two and so on. Hope that's okay. Um, So as I said, this is a session on target and responsive fiscal policy. My name is, uh, I didn't say who I am, I'm Laura Abramovski. I'm a research associate here at ODI. I'm also a research fellow at the Institute for Fiscal Studies in London. Uh, and over the course of this conference, we heard a lot about the tight fiscal conditions most countries are facing in the context of the poly crisis, And we heard a lot about what the polycrisis is yesterday we also heard about the need of governments to respond with fiscal instruments to rising poverty income inequality uncertainty and shocks particularly to the climate change um, but at the same time considering long term objectives of transitioning to greener earth friendly economies uh, and an international global order that considers better social and intertemporal costs of carbon technologies that are more inclusive, provide a more equal chance of fully participating in in society for all individuals, and I would also add uh, that includes um, more women and girls on an equal footing. Fiscal policies is one of many instruments the governments have to achieve these goals, but it is it is an important one and how these instruments are designed matter a lot and um, During the COVID-19 pandemic, some governments were better able to respond um, at speed and scale than others, particularly lower income countries were not so well placed to respond because they lacked the resources and the capabilities to deliver a policy response. But it's important to know that there have been differences in responses across countries, even within income country groups and across regions depending on the pre-crisis fiscal systems uh, and capabilities, their political will, and their social preferences and contracts. Uh, Furthermore, in the context of tight budgets, uh, the design of targeted policy seems increasingly relevant, since universal measures are too costly. So that's what this session is about, how to bring policy and policy design and delivery closer together what are the capabilities and institutional arrangements we need to respond in a more targeted and effective way? I'm delighted to be joined by a truly global all-star panel, (laughs) no pressure, who have spent their careers thinking about these issues and implementing solutions. Um, so we have Yamini Ayar. She's the president and chief executive of the Center for Policy Research, India's premier institute for research and analysis on fiscal policy. We have Mike Brocken, he's the UK's first executive director of digital and chief data officer, founder of the government digital service, and now (laughs) partner at Public Digital. And we also have um, two expert practitioners and policymakers from Ethiopia. Here in person we have Han Belew, who is uh, the disaster risk finance work stream lead for Oxford Policy Management in Ethiopia. And he works and is representing, representing, he's not here online, but he's representing Meskebu um, Amaterefe, who serves as the director of fiscal policy in the Ministry of Finance. For over a decade and is currently the senior fiscal policy advisor at the ministry, he wanted to join us today online, but he's very busy. Um, with an IMF mission, we were told so he, he, he sends his apologies, uh, but whom, uh, he's going to kick off the panel and provide us with an overview of how targeted and responsive fiscal policy has evolved in Ethiopia. Uh, the capabilities required to make it work, as well as their reflection on the success and um, ongoing challenges. Uh, just to say, I was told to be um, very strict with timekeeping. So the idea is that I give you 10 minutes to each of you, mm-hmm. and then uh, we'll have a and a question session. So Fatou, over to you, please. Thank
1: you, Laura. Uh... On behalf of uh, my colleague Mazgabu and myself, I would like to thank uh, the organizers for giving us the opportunity uh, to share uh, my country, Ethiopia's productive safety net uh, program uh, overview, implementation uh, and uh, uh, sharing their uh, the experiences for, uh, as for others. Then I'll start by uh, providing uh, very, really brief overview of the evolution of the PESNP program the productive safety net uh, program uh, is ethiopia's flagship uh, uh, social protection program implementing since 2005 which provides a safety net to vulnerable populations it have a, it has a multiple of objectives While one is actually uh, smoothing the consumption of the rural poor uh, we know, particularly uh, with uh, very uh, chronic food insecurity, by providing cash and uh, food, uh, it uh, promotes uh, consumption of the, the rural poor. The second one is uh, uh, protecting asset depletion. Uh, we know uh, during the when there is a crisis or shock, when there is a drought. The rural people are forced to sell their assets in order to secure their food. Then it protects actually the the sale of their assets. It could it could be livestock and uh, or others. Uh, The the productive safety not only provides food; uh, it also uh, encourages uh, the rural poor to engage in some uh, development activities uh, and engaging in. afforestation, watershed management, small-scale irrigation, and others. Then it's, it has also uh, the uh, objective of engaging uh, the, the rural population on developments. At the same time, it also uh, engage, it promotes the environment protection or and the climate change uh, mitigation and adaptation activities. Then uh, it has two components. That is one is the direct support. It provides direct uh, food and uh, particularly cash for those who are unable uh, to engage in the public work activity. The other one is the public work activity, which is the the larger share of the program. Uh, It provides, it requires those who are supported to engage in public works at rural level. Uh, in fact, the, the, PES, the rural PNP was started in 2005, but it is uh, the government expands this uh, to the urban uh, safety net program also because there are also uh, chronically food insecure uh, population communities in the urban areas. Then, since 2016, it is implemented in uh, 11 major uh, cities in, in the country. It has also similar objective both on the providing uh, direct support and uh, engaging in uh, public works the urban uh, safety net uh, engaging the public uh, work has uh, uh, actually it's, it's it's focused on uh, urban areas or particularly we know that solid uh, waste management is a problem in the uh, major cities then there uh, those who are supported by the Space the NPR uh, required to work uh, in, so, in solid waste management, watershed management, urban agriculture, urban beautification, development, and, and the, uh, others. Uh, you know, uh, over the last, uh, as I said, from since 2005, uh, the government implemented. Uh, Four PACE programs. Currently, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, the fifth one is being implemented, and for, from that's for 2021, 20, 2025, 20, 25 uh, Based on the, the previous uh, ex- experiences, the uh, product safety net 5 program uh, follows actually implemented uh, or designed uh, using the, these uh, principles. The focus, the first one is focusing on extreme poverty and the, the most vulnerable. Previous uh, PSNP programs are addressing particularly on uh, food insecure uh, communities. This one is the primary focus of the PSNP five is uh, addressing extreme, the extreme force. Uh, the other uh, principle is fair and transparent uh, client selection. Uh, it incorporates uh, Ro- robust access says, uh, in identifying and and, and robust uh, accountability and governance structures to implement uh, the program. Uh, it has uh, actually tries to put uh, prearranged principles in uh, how to uh, select uh, clients, uh, timely and predictable and uh, uh, appropriate or uh, sufficient fund transfer. New mechanisms uh, to enhance timelines of the transfer is introduced uh, using automated payment systems to improve the quick transfer of funds for beneficiaries including e-payment systems Uh, it uh, it also try to based on performance based transfers and annual uh, adjustment uh, to sale is also uh, incorporated in the new uh, PSNP program. Cash first principle is the other principle. This means, you know, in the in the PSNP program, uh, priority is given to for cash transfer rather than giving food, because some in some areas there are foods. Uh, the, the government, the farmers are producing their products. Then, uh, if if you add on that uh, food the the the, car, the market can be affected they in, in order to promote the local marketing uh, providing cash is preferable than uh, food productive safety net as in, the name is indicated and as I have said, said earlier it has a uh, uh, productive or investment components in it then that's why it's called productive uh, safety net because it is included, as I said, uh, other uh, development activities in the rural area. It is integrated into local system. There is no parallel uh, system uh, required by the donors. Then it is used the existing uh, financial uh, PFM system and existing uh, government staff. The, it has one objective, one strategic plan and result framework, uh, one accountability mechanism, and one m and system. Uh, there is also, uh, uh, it's used, for instance, the donors fund is using the World Bank multi-donor trust fund, and the, the end of all, in the government, there is a pool fund system. Then it uses, there is, this, it, could, it reduces the transaction cost, actually. The other, the other one is the scalable safety net, the, 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 in order to respond for crisis, which is uh, and the other one is uh, gender equity and nutrition sensitivity, that mainstreaming gender uh, numer- nutrition uh, and uh, social development uh, promoting the unique needs of women children uh, and female uh, uh, headed families It promotes women in decision making process that these are the major principles uh, when they design the current space mt five was then uh, what is unique uh, on the current uh, PNSNIP five is uh, it's, there's new way of working that is addressing risk financing or addressing shocks, then it uh, to enhance uh, resilience to shocks of extreme poor and vulnerable and household uh, warders, and it expands uh, the geographic uh, geographic coverage of the PNSNIP in addressing drought prone warders. Uh, it enhances it enhances also the PNSNIP capacity to function as an integrated shock responsive. Social safety needs, that means uh, established a pre-arranged rules of how to scale up uh, responses during uh, crisis. Uh, the, there is a credible and objective early warning system used to assess needs in order to respond quickly for the emerging crisis. Uh, the ability to scale up to address shocks is in two ways, that is horizontally by adding new beneficiaries and vertically by promoting uh, our additional assistance of existing processes. Overall, uh, PSNP has differs from the previous five by adjusting targeting groups, uh, expanding geographic areas, uh, flexible, uh, incorporating flexible uh, addressing of uh, crisis. Let me uh, briefly show you the financing uh, of the PSNP. As we see uh, from this uh, chart, Three to four percent of total federal expenditure uh, is allocated for uh, PSNP uh, That is also about six uh, percent of the GDP. Uh, actual expenditure is below the planned one because, uh, and, and and there is uh, ups and downs erratic in the expenditure because uh, m- m- the larger share share is financed from do- donor finance. Then sometimes donor fund, funds are not predictable. Uh, then. Uh, that's why we see ups and downs and uh, particularly in the recent years, the share of the expenditure is declining as uh, find flow from donors is, is, is declining. Okay, the other one uh, here, uh, we see that the source of funds actually taking for 10 years uh, data. Uh, as you see, the larger is financed from uh, external assistance, 20% by uh, domestic and 26% by uh, loan. Uh, government contribution is uh, increasing, uh, doubling for the last three years, as we see, from 70% to 35% for the last three years. This shows that commitments of the government is increasing, and uh, there is also unlikely financing of uh, the uh, external flows uh, on the strengthening data management and in the information system which is not actually mine <laughs> it's not that much uh, yeah it's
0: already
1: yeah. 10
2: minutes
1: okay i uh, will be past talking on this actually uh, uh, you know uh, uh, data management information system is very important for uh, the the program because the uh, uh, because uh, as there is a my system, uh, IT support in my system, that helps for management and operation. Uh, used also to manage beneficiaries households data for targeting and to ensure timely printable and adequate transfers, also used for monitoring programs, a delivery of fund transfers, allows users to access information, all users, uh, both the donor and the government and other users, so users can access the, the information Through that, then promoting automatic payment, as I mentioned, improve the expansion of e-payments and help uh, uh, wage rate adjustments. Uh, There is a a early warning dashboard which uh, is trying to update the time four times per per year uh, in order to use pre-arranged financing. But this uh, early warning uh, dashboard or the early warning system that is in fund stage. There is a need to digitalize it and uh, limit uh, more promoting transparency and accountability. Uh, Then there is a need to support that in in that area. Uh, Then uh, there is an ongoing effort to address uh, this weakness through implementing of IT-supported multi-hazard impact based early warning uh, roadmap. and, and, and the, let me give you a brief uh, introduction for using how PSNP uh, addresses or mitigates the impact of COVID-19. Uh, there are several uh, or rigorous evaluations showing that the penis building positive results in the addressing the household poverty and food insecurity during the pandemics. As you see from the the right corner, there is one evidence. There are multiple other similar uh, reviews, which justifies how PNP helps the government or the community to mitigate the impact of COVID. Also, in addition, during the the COVID time, government provides waiver for the public work uh, and part. uh, permission to make uh, lump sum payment for that. Uh, the, the program also helps to strengthen uh, behavioral change communication among the rural communities. Uh, uh, also, the program uh, tries to install hand washing facilities and enhance availability of sanitary materials and others. Uh, Regularly, adjustment of wage uh, was, was done to uh, mitigate the, the impact um, and other. Uh, and promoting automatic payment improvement and uh, you, using also for um, uh, and and uh, uh, identify most vulnerable in non-PSNP uh, uh, beneficiaries also like that. And how uh, I, uh, just uh, to give you some highlights uh what lessons can draw from the implementation of PSNP in Ethiopia although the init- uh, actually the init- the objective of the government uh, uh, initially was to reduce the number of beneficiaries through uh, promoting development and uh, resilience in the rural community, but due to you know the recent multiple crisis uh, the need or the number of beneficiaries increased from 4 to 5% initially to now uh, to 8 million persons uh, with 480 oradas, uh, which is uh, 60% of, of the total oradas, you call them orada, the, the lower level uh, structure. And uh, it has, it's making a meaningful contribution to reduce the reduction of rural poverty and food insecurity in, in normal times. and. In response to shock due to its ability to, to scale up, as I mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, predictability of financing is uh, a well, uh, was vital multi-year planning and financing with harmonized donor support uh, from uh, nine donor donors that are working in in one system. And, uh, and this is government-led, implemented through the existing system, as I mentioned earlier. It, integrates, uh, it is in, integrated with the broader development agendas, with the, the government's food security program, the ten-year development program, and as other uh, programs are, are working in environment protection and climate change, including the climate resilience green economy. Uh, it uh, uses community-level mechanism because communities are, in, are involved in targeting beneficiaries and promoting local accountability and development. Uh, one other area, it demonstrates importance of integrating uh, environment and climate change mitigation adaptation of things is through the public uh, public workers uh, engaging in different activities of the uh, communities. These are some of the lessons we can draw from the program. Uh, maybe I have one last, uh, last slide. Shall we stop
0: here? I, okay. I, I, I know it has been fascinating. I think already 17 minutes, but I think there's a lot to unpack um, and we can discuss, and we maybe um, continue after the Q and A. But also, you, I'm, I'm sure you will be asked many, many questions. I want to thank you <laughs> so much for 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 the presentation. Um, I think it's a great example of um, how you can a government can decide to align. Poverty objective with long term climate change objectives, and it can be done, Um, it's also increasing the government commitment to this type of um, program, even in the context of decreasing and low tax to GDP revenue, and I know in Ethiopia, they are working hard to try to see uh, how to improve tax to GDP. Ratio um to 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 have more funds to to develop to to deliver this um type of program. So thank you so much. I now um want to uh, introduce again a bit. Introduction to our next speaker, um, Yamina Yar, so as I said, she's the president and chief executive of the Center for Policy Research, where she founded the accountability initiative, which is credited with pioneering one of India's largest expenditure tracking surveys for elementary education. Yamini's work sits at the intersection of research and policy practice. Her research interests span the fields of public finance, social policy state capacity, federalism, governance, and the study of contemporary politics in India. Uh, We are delighted to have you uh, here today to talk about the response to the pandemic in India and the role of India's digital public infrastructure in this response. The floor to you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. I think in in the contemporary moment when we uh, when when India comes up uh, in discussions like this, especially on questions of social policy, um, both from the point of view of our response to the pandemic, as well as sort of larger shifts that are taking place and how we think about social safety nets. uh, There's no getting away from digitization Uh, that's that's without a doubt, uh, one of the most visible. Uh, Elements of the safety net system or the welfare state architecture that is being put into place in India Um, and in and of itself it's quite dazzling in terms of what it's seeking to achieve Uh, it is seeking to uh, sort of universalize access to the financing system through uh, by by, uh, creating uh, bank accounts for everybody. Uh, And it is through uh, a process of a fairly complex uh, payment pipeline creating has created effectively the mechanism for what we call in India direct benefit transfer so uh, cash that can directly be uh, cut through the layers of the administrative architecture and drop straight into beneficiary bank accounts. Um, And this is one of the most well-known elements of uh, what India has built. It's been core to uh, how we have projected our safety net system. It's been core to the G20 dialogue and digital payment infrastructures. Um, And and it's widely uh, sort of projected as in some ways holding uh, all the elements of what we call good governance, responsive fiscal targeting policies in that. Uh, These cut through layers of administration. So uh, in in uh, in the Indian lexicon, there used to be a a statement made by our prime minister in the 1980s that out of of one rupee that goes from the central government coffers down to the uh, to the village. 80 of it is eaten up by the administration along the way, both in administrative costs as well as in corruption. And now we have sort of produced this fantastic system that bypasses this dysfunctional corrupt state, drops money directly into everybody's bank accounts. And you see these dazzling numbers that flash on various government uh, uh, websites and MIS systems that tell you how much money is being saved by virtue of all of this. The reason I'm not presenting a slide with all these fantastic numbers is because uh, these are numbers. Uh, we don't actually have uh, a census yet in India. We don't have our statistical system uh, has not uh, uh, updated its uh, uh, surveys on consumption expenditure, so we don't have uh, a sense of where we are in terms of shifts in poverty. So, th- but but we do know that infrastructure has been built there's no denying that Uh, we also know that politicians love it Uh, you just have to look at the manifestos of every uh, 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 every political party to know that direct cash transfers now is very much part and parcel of the set of electoral offerings so there is electoral hot electoral competition around this. And I would venture so much as to say, don't kill me, everybody in this room. But politicians know quite well what goes on on the ground, uh, much better perhaps than all of us over here with our sophisticated tools to evaluate. So probably something is happening, but beyond that, I can't say. Um, and and that's the broad structure uh, in which um, uh, the, the 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 safety net story of India has unfolded. Uh, there's a structure in place, it may work, it may not work, it's your bias versus mine, and so what I thought I would do in the few minutes I have here is to just present to you instead of a sort of litany of all the things that we have done, uh, given the absence of data, a set of provocations uh, around what it means to actually have a digital infrastructure. Uh, For us to think a little bit harder about because I think they have significant implications on questions of social safety nets and on questions of fiscal responsive fiscal targeting Uh, so let me put present three to you, the first. And they all intersected and I think uh, for me what matters most I think in all of this is the underlying political economy that is shaping this welfare architecture that we are building, and I think we need to be very cognizant of it, especially when we allow for uh, the discourse to almost be taken over by frameworks of efficiency of uh, good governance of corruption. Uh, Ultimately, these are all deeply political acts and we need to be when we're talking about social safety nets we're essentially talking about that which goes to the most marginalized. And I don't think that there's any way of getting around the politics, it should be front and Center, so let me say three things Um, one who is targeted is in and of itself a deeply political act. It is an act of uh, complex uh, political negotiation of interests competing with each other, and of politics striking forms of compromise that inevitably give more, uh, of, uh, depending on the nature of the politics, inevitably give more value to some voices and others. And and it's in that, in the interstices of this tension, that the nature of who gets targeted uh, is sort of built in. I think one of the really interesting things about uh, technology is that in some ways it can blunt precisely that competition. Now you could argue that's a really good thing because it essentially allows you to go down the road of universal targeting in some senses. Uh, It cuts out vested interests and elite capture that has always been one of the big challenges with any kind of targeting. But at the same time, it raises very important questions about what is the core purpose of your welfare architecture, so if your core purpose of the welfare architecture which in in social democratic context in the Western world essentially was very closely integrated with. Uh, uh, with the labor market. So it it comes out with a so it begins with a sort of full employment imagination and uh, ensuring that you are able to provide a certain kind of safety net to those who don't have the ability to access full employment, whether it is uh, maternity injury pensions, all of those elements come in and over time uh as full employment from the golden era of of welfareism uh here in in europe uh, uh uh unemployment starts becoming part and parcel of the structure uh addressing at least temporarily the unemployment problem also becomes quite central to the framework of the uh, of the welfare architecture now in countries like india employment or rather the uh, the 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 tensions between capital and labor are not the front and center framework in which the welfare architecture is being built it is primarily about providing safety nets to the informal economy that is mostly invisible from the entire economic uh, 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 and state architecture and it is about being able to provide the right kind of safety nets there but when you take away the 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 negotiations and 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 the the jostling between interest groups. The real question is, what is it? So if it's going to be, which is essentially what it is now in India, a quasi universal welfare structure now in and of itself, normatively, that may not be a bad thing at all, but it raises a very important fiscal question because basically essentially you're giving safety nets to almost 80% of your population. And when it gets divorced from any questions of employment you're not going to be generating revenue directly linked to. The kind of welfare structure that you're building So how do you actually manage responsive fiscal targeting in this kind of scenario. And, given the nature of the politics around it, you will inevitably once you launch a scheme it's going to be very difficult to walk away from it. Now, in the days before we had, so, so my second, so 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 can you? So I guess my first provocation then is, uh, and I don't have any good answers. I'm just you know in the business of uh, of provoking, and and hopefully you'll all tell me what, what how to think about this. But but I guess what, one question is: Can you, in the world of db of of, of technology, which allows you to cut through uh, the the kind of coalition building and jostling of interests? Uh, actually have fiscally responsive safety nets, you will essentially be mostly in a universal structure. And when you're not actively addressing the question of employment, at least in countries like ours, where you still aren't taxing at the level at which you can for a for, for, for a young economy that should be actually in the formal marketplace. How and in what form are you going to generate that revenue? So how do you balance out? questions of revenue generation with fiscally responsive so in a sense, you basically have an expenditure policy that's very much about safety nets but it's divorced entirely from your revenue raising imagination completely. The second element of this is uh, centralization Um, by work by design technology is a deeply centralizing feature now again, you could argue that that's a good thing it cuts out the layers of decentralized chaos. But one of the elements of that centralization is it essentially takes the state very, very far away from where all the action is. And when you take the state very, very far away from where all the action is from the point of view of fiscally responsive targeting, you actually have a harder time figuring out how to create a how to pay pipeline or who to pay pipeline than you would in the old chaos uh, where there would be actually tangible physical sites of engagement between beneficiaries and the state where there would be jostling, so you know there's a lot of very nice documentation of how in an extremely ineffective. uh, deeply deeply corrupt lots of elite capture structure of local governance in India, uh, the real contestation in public meetings between the local governments and 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 citizens was around who could be. Uh, uh, who could enter the below poverty list in order to be able to access benefits? Um, that was a public process. It was a, It was not. Uh, I'm, I'm not romanticising it at all. Uh, it was deeply uh, co- contextual. Structured inequalities meant that there was always elite capture, but there was bargaining. Actual physical bargaining. What the uh, a digital structure has done is that it has cre- it has converted that bargaining process into a database you are in the database or you are not in the database. And it has also taken away the power of negotiation at the grassroots site where contestation takes place because the database is controlled very far away. So what the local government officer gets is basically a document where they can cross verify attributes of individuals that are that are to be targeted for a program they can delete, but they cannot include because the minute you open up the space for including too much politics comes in the way and that becomes a problem. So we've so, 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 we don't allow inclusion; we allow a lot of deletion, but it takes away sites of contestation because these are actually hotly contested sites. After all, you are essentially dealing with uh, extreme poverty and uh, and poverty, which basically means for six months, if I have a job, I'm able to, uh, you know, uh, buy a uh, purchase a particular asset, and I lose my job, and so I lose my wages, and I no longer have that asset, and I've fallen back into poverty It's a very, very fluid process, so I can be in and out of that list very quickly, uh, but there is no space where uh, I can actually present my grievance because the system is so centralized and the power and authority of decision making is actually going away from the front line to a server very, very far away it's like the kind of frustrations we feel when you're calling up the call centers to try and get your credit card unblocked or anything. Uh, And you know it's all you're always put on hold and you'll get that repeat message, so what happens when, through the process of digitization you essentially convert a very contested process of politics, which is targeting into a centralized system, it may give you fiscal responsiveness, but it begs the question of whether the state is actually reaching where it should and what the purpose of the targeting effectively is and the last point i'll make i know i've overshot the last point i'll make is that we also need to be cognizant of and i mean technology is always an aid it's not a solution uh, but we we do need to be cognizant of the fact that uh in a very complex uh wor- place where the world finds itself where uh, personalized po- politics even in democratic settings is the norm Uh, The ability of technology to personalize and centralize politics itself is extremely powerful and significant. We talk about it a lot in the context of social media. We don't talk about it in the context of what social safety nets and technology can in combined do. It essentially brings the leader that is transferring uh, cash to you very directly into your home. And the reason why this is an important question for democracy is that it comes back to the fundamental political science question. Of patron-client relationships, uh, role of you know role of social safety nets in terms of its responsive welfare states' responsibility towards citizens versus welfare states' responsibility to uh, as a sort of charity or a, or patronage that is given. So when when you move the the into a very personalised form of social of politics of social safety nets it does in in fact take away i feel from the core element of citizenship it sort of becomes very much about a very transactional Patronage oriented contract between politician and voter, and therefore raises very important questions for how do we think about safety nets and democracy. So these are just provocations. In the end, if the goal is to ensure that there is cash that is delivered to citizens, the digital infrastructure perhaps is far more efficient than the old days of grassroots contestation, which often got monies into the wrong hands. But at the same time, whilst we are building this extremely efficient structure, we need to be very cognizant of the larger politics that shapes it because ultimately it is a larger politics that will enable the effectiveness of the use of this and ensure that it is genuinely fiscally responsive and not just a big fiscal uh, sort of giveaway uh, that that you know 20 years down the line the next generation is scratching its heads over
0: thank you thank you so much <laughs> Thank you. Um, well fascinating as well very different uh, to ethiopia clearly a nearly almost universal system and not so uh, targeted even if digitalized and i guess that's a social preference social contracts political issues um whether it's linked or not to the labor market i think and whether that um, relates to tax payment and tax morale it's something that is very cultural and social and potentially quite specific uh, as well to Mm -hmm. India. Um, And I guess tax evasion or informality is an issue across the income distribution and not only for those that Mm -hmm. receive Mm -hmm. um, these uh, cash transfers, but let's discuss a bit more later. Uh, And so I will uh, now um, introduce like just give the floor to Mike. I will um, mention again, he's a partner a public digital. He's a public sector technology leader, who was a founder and executive director of the UK government digital service. He's a global um, digital leader also, who has led wholesale transformations of large institutions in the private and public sector in different countries uh, around the world. Uh, and we have asked Mike to discuss the potential of data, digital capabilities, and new institutional arrangements to bring policy and delivery together, and the dangers associated with these capabilities, uh, and how can this be mitigated? Uh, Over to you.
3: Thanks, Laura. One minute, two minutes?
0: (laughs) I give you. I will put the the timer again, Mm -hmm. but I've been less strict than I thought I was going to be anyway. (laughs) You are all too fascinating. Yes. Well,
3: um, (laughs) thank you for that introduction. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks to the ODI uh, for helping us uh, and, and supporting public digital. I first should say that the, the, the two examples we've just heard, particularly the sort of on the ground example with cash transfer in Ethiopia and I'm reasonably familiar with your colleagues in India and Adhar and everything else and social policy. You know, that's one of the reasons we do this job and why, why the digital government is so fascinating, because it has a real profound effect on people. Um, There's an awful lot of things we can discuss, and I think the Q&A will be richer, but I'm just going to firstly just introduce public digital we're a consultancy work with 40 plus governments around the world, uh, all over the world, colleagues all over the world, and uh, we are 65% female, sadly, you get me today. female, Um, uh, And we work with sort of big funders gates uh, and others around the world, so these projects and this sort of. Issues such as sort of the effect of technology on, on governance are sort of our sweet spot. Um, I want to start with a provocation, which is uh, according to Standish Group research, which some of you might be familiar with, uh, IT based programs in governments fail 83% of the time. 83%. Why do we keep doing that? We've been doing that now for 25 years and we are addicted to failure so I'm I I sit on the board of a bank I advise three of the world's global development banks I've got a finance background so I sometimes ask myself, why are we still talking about this stuff so I want to sort of uh give a provocation really and and I think that one of the reasons I've learned in my career and as I say as as someone who's made many mistakes we've not got enough time to talk about all the mistakes I've made today is abstraction and I talked to government units around the world, particularly in finance and economics ministries, making big decisions around capital flows around investments around technology based delivery. And the problem is time and again is abstraction now today has been great because the the example PSP in. um, Ethiopia, the real world issues of society, democracy and governance in India, they are real examples, but too often I think many of the decisions that we make. About how to try and solve those problems, we are so far abstracted from the real experience of people. You mentioned this about politicians having a closer grasp, and I think that that's one of the problems that bedevils us. In, in pub, with public digital with the ODI, we, we wrote a paper. It's on the website. We identified six continuous problems in finance and economics ministries that really show this abstraction. They are a, a reliance on off-the-shelf technology, often just not fit for purpose, but it's easy to buy. Um, not really understanding user needs, we understand our government needs much more than the needs of people who actually want to use stuff. Uh, We have uh, an unfailing belief in the success of Big Bang IT projects, despite 83% of them failing all the time. Uh, We're often bereft of the digital skills we need in our own governments. Um, Our funding models for these programs often are not set up for success. Funding models can be over sort of 10 plus years in some cases, great to be funded, but actually it, resolves, it needs a degree of science fiction to believe in the outcomes that you're going to get. Uh, and, and six is an unfailing belief that the sunk costs we've spent on failure must be maintained. That, that legacy technology that's failed, must that we need like lots more licenses for that technology. Now those six things are eminently sortable But the question for me is, is why don't we sort them out? Because I set up the government digital service in the UK with some of my colleagues here. I won't go on about that very boring, but it was done as a response to crisis. The UK had fundamentally failed 12 billion pounds on NHS IT system didn't work. Tax, borders, justice, big IT had failed. It failed recently in Australia, in Commonwealth countries, it fails all the time. Australia recently with its tax system, I could go around the world. And so the government digital service was really an attempt to try something different. There are now we set roughly a model about focusing on user needs, working in small teams, multidisciplinary teams, having small amounts of finance to test and build rapidly and continue to change your services as to how people are actually using them, not to how policy dictates you would like to use them. That model, by and large, has led to about 350 digital units around the world at the moment, some are cosmetic, some are marketing led, some are political, but many of them have this way of working at the heart. And the fundamental challenge, I think, is how do we as a community of finance and economic policy people and, and delivery people come together to harness that because. We're still doing the big IT failure thing too often, and these programs—not not, not yours—but these types of programs are simply too important to be left to that. Um, I think there's a number of things we can do, uh, and so I'll be very positive. There's a number of sort of no regrets things, and I, I'm not paying on any country here because some of them <laughs> will have done already. We spend a lot of time in countries. Firstly, have a service oriented finance ministry now how are you set up finance and economics together separate doesn't matter too often i go to countries and ask some very simple I, I ask these questions when i came to uk government how many services do we have people go hmm, that's a good one <laughs> you better ask the, the ministries and they're like okay well we're funding them so how much are we spending on them oh that's a difficult one it's over a number of years um how many people use them today What does success look like? How many people applied for a passport, got a driving license? These are very simple data flows. Without them, how on earth can we judge the value and efficacy of our spending? The data flows that we should have are not particularly advanced. They're just telling us what people are actually doing. I'm going to pick on Laura here, not pick on Laura, but I'm going to pick on Laura. We share a a similar uh, uh, experience in Argentina, if you're from Argentina. And Argentina, as you know, has had many economic crises. I worked with the Argentinian government, and those macroeconomic crises about lending IMF, I'll put them to one side. Because when I walk around Buenos Aires and, and, and other places in Argentina, which I do with my friends, and uh, I spent a sabbatical there, not one person in Argentina talked to me about the policies of the government, not one. What they talked about was they couldn't get a driving license, the tax thing didn't work, this didn't work. They talked almost all the time about services. And the experience of people in government, the thing that damages democracy at the end of the day and trust in government is not bad policy. It is the service delivery as a result of that policy that's not being delivered and a focus on services, what is actually happening today is crucial, I think, for finance and economics ministries and too often I spend time with colleagues in, in those ministries who go, well. I very big brain. And I couldn't, you know, actually get involved in the detail of what the government does. But I would like to write a long term paper on its long term macroeconomic position. And, And that needs doing but not without understanding the service mix and service model. So number one, get hold of the service data. Number two, Put those digital units or those skills, however you structure them in government, relatively rare skills, product management, user research, these things that we've not really paid attention to, put them as close to the source of money as you can. Like they are the tool by we, we took four, 4.1 billion out of, the UK, out of the 16 billion spend in the UK. So we made better services, happier users for 25% less of cost. And the money just fell out the bottom it's not difficult, you need to put those people not in some distant department or project. put them right where the money is. This is really hard for find the next one really hard for finance people to understand. It's not about capex, our commitment to capex and sort of long term it spending. It's great because we work on spreadsheets, and we have a budget to meet. and the finance minister wants to know, but it, 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 this that and the other, but it leads to false certainty. So when I came to government, people said you know we spent X billion or millions on this thing and it doesn't work And on my iPad and I say I know because you spent it. Five years before iPads were invented it just took that long to be delivered like you can't keep predicting the future with large scale capital flows we don't know what the future user experience of digital services changes so rapidly. We have got to be a much more focused and thoughtful and put our money in our OPEX in relatively small groups of people that can deliver quickly at scale. Look at Togo. Anyone here from Togo, please? Anyone? No. (laughs) Sina Lawson, Togo, the story of the coronavirus response. Togo, excuse my ignorance, like down the order of Gini coefficients. We would expect all the problems. Eight million people. Digital currency within three weeks and COVID response health data records nationally all women ahead of households delivered in i think about four weeks astonishing digital response why you got digital skills opex not no big capital program get some money to those people quickly that's the way to do it that's very hard for a finance and economics people to understand it's not digital change isn't really about long-term capital investments it's about short-term skills and giving those people relatively small months of money to make services. Um, last one, I could go on, but I won't because I'm very boring. Um, technology is a, you said technology is a centralizing function on a, I, I really you have struck on something that is so fundamental, I think, and I don't want to. Um, uh, I agree, w- agree with you, but there's a caveat to your sentence, which is only because we have chosen it to be. In the 1960s and 70s, if you look at enterprise technology, the idea of big companies that you all know Oracle Microsoft all these big companies. What they essentially said to governments were as the sphere of government gets bigger and you want to do more things welfare pensions transport, whatever. You can't keep expanding the people in government forever we're going to do, give you a deal we're going to give you this grid. we're going to say have our technology and you will retain control. And it's such a compelling deal i think and it leads to government to this day going if i just have one big contract if i have one big outsourcing one big supplier everything will be fine the jury is in 83 percent of the time that doesn't work the risk always 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 comes back to the government the government always picks up the tab what india's doing at the moment with enterprise technology is so interesting because you've got adha you've got hundreds of million people connected to the state kyc and yet the perception of on the reality of lack of local control i would say it doesn't have to be like that that's those systems can just as easily empower local people to have that conversation they've just not chosen to do that they've chosen enterprise rather than internet era technology and i think the thing that all governments around the world have got to sort of you know sort of going to sort of rehab about is that technology doesn't get enterprise technology doesn't give control it leads to rent seeking arrangements it leads to failure and too often not it leads to a lack of political participation and trust it is damaging in the long term to democracy and or, or to democratic engagement and I think that's a very hard lesson for governments to learn and it does require us to go around and say you know all this sunk costs that we're carrying around we're just going to have to let that go that's a tough lesson for anyone so uh, it's not my money so I can say that but uh, I think I'll leave it there and hopefully that's enough provocation but I would like to say thank you to the speakers because you're actually on the ground doing like God's own work in terms of programs and if we can help if digitalization can help you achieve better outcomes and actually help your funders to see what you're doing more then it's got to be worth doing differently.
0: Thank you, Mike, thanks so much. <laughs> um, so thanks again to all our speakers. And now for the fun part, again, some Q&A. So um, yeah, please raise your hands. Uh, we, we can take uh, three, four questions, and then come up. Yes. Yeah. Over here.
4: Hello, um, so Nicholas on Swiss think um, just for the last speaker, I'm very curious, how do we define success or failure for these systems, how do we know which ones have failed and which ones have succeeded, what, what is the criteria. Great um, question. I think yeah
0: a few
3: and then we. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. So it's clever how do I. Yeah. how do I do it or how does this?
5: Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Paulo Paolo from uh, FGV in Brazil. I want to come back to the example of Togo. I mean, I remember reading about it and being so fascinated by it and you only gave a very quick count of why it worked. My question is really why? I mean, it was, it was such an easy, quick win. You know, they made it work so quickly and so effectively. Why didn't it happen anywhere else? What's your sense of that? Thanks.
2: Thank you for the, the great presentation. Uh, a question for the speakers from India and uh, Ethiopia. In terms of the uh, performance of these uh, policies, are you monitoring some performance indicators other than the volume of cash that has been uh, delivered? And if that is the case, which ones? Thank you. Thank you.
6: Thank you very much. Uh, this is Andy Silabest uh, from Cabri. Uh, I've got the first question is more on the first from the first speaker uh, about the Ethiopia uh, story. I think my interest is more uh, generally on sustainability uh, uh, of these uh, programs perhaps uh, rather than having uh, what I can call perpetual dependence uh, and and perhaps uh, how if there's any anything that is planned uh, for that, and then for the India um, uh, case, uh, I think my interest is more on the input or source databases, uh, the credibility of 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 the information uh, that is used in order to then decide. Uh, who should benefit or who should not benefit? I I, I think I took uh, note of your point of political uh, influence or even infiltration of decisions uh, on which uh, beneficiary would make it or not uh, into the targeting there, and uh, and and perhaps whether there is any element of beneficiary participation. Whether it is at a policy decision level, uh, or to decide on how or what criteria is used uh, to decide on on beneficiaries that would uh, benefit, um, uh, the, I, I think I'm interested in in the ownership uh, of the citizens in in, in what uh, the country is do, is doing. I think just to comment on the last uh, speaker on the, on on one of the points, and and I also. My colleague behind me here asking about the issue, the failure or or success. Uh, one of the critical things that we should always note when it comes to uh, IT systems. Uh, let's not think of IT being a solution to everything, uh, but just know that uh, whatever problem that you have, then the solution must be talking to that particular problem. If you were not able to, uh, then know how you are working or how you are doing the manual work uh, or processing of whatever that you did, uh, chances are the IT will not be your solution if you can't even scope even manually your own challenges. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. I think we we give the, the speakers a chance to answer this round of questions and then we take some more. So uh, Mike, do you want to? Uh-huh.
3: Standish Group is the research you're looking for. They have very clear definitions of success and failure. I think they do it every year. '83 was the worst year. It's come. It's it's improved a bit, but you take the point. So have a look at theirs. My definition. They don't track the right thing, in my opinion. Not not all the right things. For governments generally, cost per transaction. What does it cost to deliver a not the cost of a drive, but the delivery of that one transaction? Once you understand cost per transaction, governments massively overpay. On delivery by, by usually by a factor of ten, so it's very very cheap. Um, completion percentage. Um, IT programs, to the gentleman's point, can say, well, we've delivered our IT. The thing may be unusable. It's like how many people start a, uh, uh, an interaction with government, maybe just for information, and actually finish because that's even worse. When you don't finish, you just create failure waste. Someone else in the system has to go and tidy it up and everything else. That is, there's a multiplier of waste, usually about 40% of bureaucratic activity is managing waste, created by not doing it right the first time. If you get it right the first time, huge amounts of money fall out. Um, And and having a metric for failure waste is really important. Um, But have a look at Standish Group, Togo, uh why did they do it well they're not the only one they're an extremely good example but crisis response to covid there's an almost perfect correlation my colleague james stewart did a little piece of work uh, at the time where you have a multidisciplinary team using relatively open technology and data so not big procurement license that take ages where they have skills for product management information delivery and whether at the center of the government the corona the covid response and that country was generally much better. Togo is the top of the list. Why were they so good? They'd had SARS and MERS, so they have some experience. They have a fantastic leader, Gina Lawson, Gina Lawson, who has the ability to just cut through structure of government. So it's managing crisis rather than managing up and down in departmental lines. And crucially to your point is the, 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 the data service and the flows was a small part of it. It's about having it aligned with people on the ground who are delivering service. Because technology based programs that sit in isolation really work anyway, so I think Togo is worth checking out.
0: Thank you so much. So I, I would give the floor to 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 discuss performance uh, indicators and also sustainability. Thank
1: okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, there, these are actually two good questions on performance uh, measurement and sustainability. The the program, actually, from the beginning, we're starting from the designing of the program. It has a very rigorous MND system, and both donor and government uh, conduct biannual reviews on the program. They have even they go to 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 the ground where the the beneficiaries are locating. Then uh, they do a biannual review on the performance of the the program. And that's a very uh, interactive and uh, engaged both the the development partners and the government. On sustainability, yeah, that is the issue uh, uh, or the the, uh, an important issue sustainability. Actually, the program has uh, uh, tried to uh, promote uh, graduation. From the, 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 the from the, the program, and uh, the component of the public uh, work is uh, assumed okay uh, to build sustainability. That means uh, it's, it's it's related with the development activities of the country. Then that uh, development activity or engaging the community with the public work is assumed uh, to build the to increase the adaptation and mitigation of the uh, the, the the crisis, then it has uh, sustainability. In addition to that, actually, uh, in addition to the PSNP uh, program, also the government uses the other uh, fiscal policy measures in addressing uh, shocks. And overall, that uh, uh, there is uh, this component of uh, increasing and promoting sustainability of the of the program. Thank you.
2: So so I think um, so so two questions one on what is being tracked so uh, I mean uh, we have fairly sophisticated administrative databases uh, that are tracking broadly the movement of money um, uh, and uh, all the attributes uh, around uh, the basis on which the targeting takes place so different schemes have different attributes. um, What is missing, I think, is the state capacity to actually uh, draw on these data systems, because it is a fairly sophisticated set of processes of analytical capability uh, and uh, analyze and understand who is being targeted, what is the nature of exclusion, etc. Um, and also within that, build it into the administrative system's capability to respond. That That's a very fundamental state capacity question of where power and decision making uh, rests within the chain of command of the administration. Um, and certainly in the Indian administrative system, it is extremely centralized in terms of decision making power. Accountability is very much defined as a process of accounting, not a process of actually uh, 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 working towards a particular set of objectives, so that kind of uh, creates greater incentives to use technology to centralize the entire process. So, I, I, you know, I mean, to Mark's point, I agree that uh, technology is as centralizing as you want it to be, but it enables that centralization in a way in which a culture of centralization facilitates that. What we don't have uh, at this point in time are good evaluations, either third-party evaluations, at least none that I have seen, Or for that matter, the capacity of the Indian statistical system to produce large-scale evaluation data that gives you a sense of what the impact of all of this is on consumption patterns, on income, on, you know, obviously the big questions of poverty um, and for that we have to wait for a census so that there's comparable data and our uh, consumption expenditure survey, which is what we use to cal- uh, to understand poverty. So so those are things we don't have and we don't know. Um, it goes back, I, th- I guess, in some ways to this question of ownership. Um, Given the popularity of direct benefit transfers and don't forget that that popularity of direct benefit transfers in India is coming at a time when both we have upgrade, we have built up the technology and we see that technology is very much part of the state building process. As well as um, a larger, uh, very structural constraint in the Indian economy in that it's simply it's growing in a way that is simply not able to provide to produce jobs that uh, uh, are available to all right. So in some senses, the 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 uh, you know, the the rather than dealing with these very fundamental structural questions, if you look at our labor data, you see that India has this very unique in the last since 2017 actually uh, reversal of structural transformation as agriculture suddenly has become the primary employer, more so than manufacturing uh, and services to uh, uh, in, in India. And so it tells you a uh, gives you a bit sense of, you know, what is actually happening within the labor market and the extent to which unemployment crises is really a serious crisis. And in that context, the direct benefit transfers as a way of uh, enabling consumption, smoothing becomes a very popular uh, tool, so there is ownership in that. Um, It is politically uh, uh, recognized as an important thing and uh, and, and to the extent that politics responds to signals of voters, there is a degree of ownership. When it actually comes to the determination of how you design the inclusion criteria, uh, who you target and in what form and how, that has become an extremely technocratic, bureaucratic exercise. Uh, For instance, in one state in which we work, defined six eligibility criteria that are basically an administrative set of criteria and then the administrative system along with the database sort of works through those to identify which households fit within that category and which don't and what i meant in terms of sites of contestation being closed down is if you think you fit within that six sets of eligibility criteria there is no local a community meeting where these can be negotiated and even if there is a local community meeting there is no local power or authority that rests with the local government or local administrator to take that decision at best it can be passed on to the higher L- levels of the bureaucratic structure to to be able to take those decisions and so, so so it's a we call it grievance redress I don't like that word because I think it's a lot more than just that uh, it's a, it's after all entry into government systems uh, or entry into social safety nets is a is to my mind a deeply political exercise and has everything to do with how vulnerable and marginalized citizens are able to express and assert their voice.
0: Thank you, thank you so much, I have um, if my. Um, chair privileges to just ask a follow up question i'm uh, so you say you don't have census data, you don't have a uh, survey data. But the state has admin data to decide who. Across the whole population who gets. Um, who meets the criteria or or doesn't? So
2: it's like a bit like can you so I- explore further? Right? So, so, hey, <laughs> now it starts getting complicated. Uh, so, so 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 subnational governments, state governments, collect data in some way for, for particular sets of programs. Some states have done uh, caste, so, what, what we call socio-economic caste census and build up their own databases. Um, uh, others do other things. There are different types of administrative data that are used, electricity usage. Do you have a uh... Uh, um, you know, for, for different schemes and programs and uh, uh, numbers, are unique identities are given, cards are given. Do you sit within the database for the public distribution system for free food? That would suggest that you were, you know, so so different kinds of administrative databases are created within silos. Technically speaking, and you know, uh, colleagues in this room will uh, uh, will be much better at explaining all of this, but the Aadhaar number sort of prov- it becomes a foundation on the basis of which all these different uh kinds of identity are provided so technically speaking this data can be interoperable uh, and can be used to come up with uh some we- ways of cross-verification verif- to ensure that uh, eligibility crit- criteria are, are are verified but uh to the extent that there is actually a large-scale third-party verification th- through data and the extent to which we can draw on data to evaluate impact and administrative data also has to be constantly verified, uh, both by uh, academics, but also by citizens, it needs to be in the public domain in order to ensure it's not garbage in garbage out no, no, so. I, I <laughs> I just like
0: uh, to make the point clear, it's a it's a political decision like. Not to have oh, this census, census I mean, and uh, a household survey we, to try to evaluate we, all, oh, of, of yeah, these things, yeah, yeah. and we come yeah, back to yeah, the yeah, yeah. political yeah, economy yeah, of things. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. just uh, more questions to the floor.
7: Yeah, but you, you know, I, I, the, I actually have question to all the panelists because the, the thing is with with government. I I, I think uh, the the country's context matter. When it comes to digitalization. And you know, the success of Togo emerged from the fact that um, they had uh, what they, a, a verification system, a digital verification system that identify individuals, more or less, that anyone can easily be identified. And of course, it's easier to, to make any policy. Now, for, for governments, uh, especially at the center, they always embark on giant projects that talk to each other. For instance, if I'm a minister of finance, or, and I'm making allocation, I need to also have a system that has interoperability that can speak with perhaps the, the banks, the banking system, and of course, uh, the central bank or the accountant general. So such kind of system required actually giant projects to be able to execute. Otherwise, there, there is tendency to be failure or some kind of hacking system. Or, or, or something that they, that will affect the security of of, of the system. So those considerations are always given in, in terms of government. We have uh, introduced what we call a bank verification system in Nigeria. And the idea of the BVN is to identify serial defaulters in the banking system. And it is a giant project, but it is very successful and it has worked. And in fact, we are replicating it in the entire West Africa. Such that if someone uh, is an investor or perhaps takes money from uh, a system, he can easily be identified in any part of West Africa. So, those kind of uh, peculiarities also come into play when it comes to um, uh, implementation of, of, of government policies. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah, yeah one chair here. here there. Yeah, many. <laughs>
6: Yeah, yeah, it's just an addition to this really that uh, uh, Mike Bracken spoke about enterprise systems kind of being uh, Voldemort in in this in this world, Uh, but surely, you know, national payment systems, payroll systems, which do redistribute power to the center uh, are are necessary as well uh, in certain spaces.
7: Uh, David Nabena with the NGF Nigeria Governance Forum. I think my question is also linked with theirs as well. Um, what is the scope of um, private sector data uh, in informing initially from the design stage or even at the measurement stage uh, in bridging some of the, the gap, right? right? In India, she mentioned census con- um, and even household surveys GDP data there are usual lags uh, quarterly, yearly. Um, how can we use private sector data to close some of the gaps in design stage and even in um, checking the service uh, impact and, and outcomes?
0: Yeah.
5: So this, okay. Can you can you introduce quickly yourself? Hi, David Rosenfeld, Research Associate at ODI um i had a question about what you think all of this means for finance ministries both in terms of their organization and recruitment of you know the type of people you have there because you know in in a lot of places i think finance ministries tend to be places where they like to formulate policy they're not necessarily operational and around sort of so obvious service delivery so a lot of the digital specialists, you know, for example, in the UK will be in places like in HMRC for tax and work in pensions, things like that. But Treasury itself that recruits people who like to design the policies and think, you know, and centralize, you know, a lot of decision making. Um, what, what does that mean in terms of, of the kind of skills that y- y- you want there? Or, or what does it mean in terms of the power that you want to give to the finance ministry long term this is probably a bit
0: vague one last question well two and we two there and
7: hi uh viraj tyagi from Ega foundation i think the conversation on digital digitization as a force of centralization is very interesting and i think uh, in a way digitization itself is it that it's a force for centralization, or has it been politicized to become a force? I think that's the question in my mind, because a lot of times the design of technology now looks at it's very easy to to decentralize with multi-tenanted architectures and all those things, right? But given the funding, given where the power sits, it, it, it gets politicized and keeps moving up and up and up. So I think that is the question. Uh, uh, I, know, I know Mike, you said from a technology point of view, it's very easy to decentralize. But when you look at GovTech, it again becomes a bit of a political act. So I would love to hear uh,
4: some more views on that. Thank
0: you. One last one
4: here. Um, thank you. Good morning, uh, Andrew Lawson from Fiscus. Um, I worked with uh, Atto Fandhun and his colleagues on the, on the PSMP. Um, and I think you were actually a little bit too modest about what the PSMP has achieved. Um, you know, most of us in the UK still remember uh, the periods of, of droughts of the 1980s and how, in the 1980s and 90s, drought inevitably turned into famine. And what the PSMP has succeeded in doing is avoiding famine. There, there have not been famines, I think, for, for many years now. And it also covers um, 8 million people full time, growing to 12 million in, in times of need. So that's approximately 10% of the population. Um, And in terms of unit costs of transfer, it's one of the most efficient transfer systems in the world. But I wanted to ask uh, a question about the next stage. And um, one of the things that's happening is to try to move to a more digitalized system of transfer. And they're using what they call electronic payments. But because a lot of the beneficiary households don't have bank accounts, they have what they call development agents in the local banks that then distribute money to to the households which obviously has problems of inefficiency and potentially corruption although there doesn't seem to be much much problem of corruption Uh, at least it's not reported they are also trialing systems using mobile bank money so what what the ethiopians call uh, ebir which is similar to empeza in kenya and tanzania so i was wondering you know how the trialing of of uh, mobile payments is working whether there's some thinking about a shift towards that and also perhaps the other speakers might comment uh, in terms of decentralization as well is it better to be getting your payment on your phone um, and also Mike what sort of experience you have comparing e-payments through banks versus um, mobile mobile money solutions thank you so oh,
0: whole do you mind
1: starting <clears throat> okay thank you uh, on the I, I think i agree with the uh the, uh, considering the country context uh, in fact uh, how using the digital the digitalization on many transport and uh, the others uh, uh, e- the ethiopia is actually it's a, b- a very b- big and wide, wide country uh, infrastructure is not that much uh, developed it's being that it. and now I think currently the government opens for uh, other uh, uh, telecom companies, but uh, it, uh, previously it, there was only one national uh, telecom company. Now or it's open for uh, the, uh, the others, and uh, and it's being actually ex- ex- expanded. Uh, And yes, uh, uh, then uh, within that context, you have to think the expansion of the digital payment and uh, that's within that context. Yes, Andrew, Andrew, as uh, you mentioned, I think uh, the program uh, is trying to uh, expand or to to do the transfers through electronic payments Uh, and using that uh, with with the bank transfers. But in some areas, uh, bank services is still not uh, accessible. It, it, it depends on the, on the expansion of the infrastructure. But uh, the government is pushing to use uh, mobile banking and uh, non-cash trans, the transfers and, uh, and non-tax transactions. It been that, uh, the, as I said, also the new, uh, the, uh, the new the telecom company, the private uh, telecom company, is also is allowed to engage in uh, many trans um, transfers. That is also one addition uh, for the expanding. The if, as long as there is a competition uh, between the two, at least between the two companies, the service will be uh, improved and expanded. Then that will be an opportunity for the program to use uh, electronic banking, uh, e-payment and uh, uh, others. That that, that is the intention towards uh, promoting or using e-payment and automated uh, transfers for the beneficiaries. As you said, it will uh, reduce the transaction cost, maybe also the corruption and other related issues. That's very important. Thank you
0: thank you so much so i think um there were other questions related to whether you need a uh, giant uh, enterprises systems or not or an interoperability and how this also relates to centralization decentralization dynamic of the system interaction with um users so uh, yeah, I mean, do you want to comment on that in the context of India, and then you can comment in the context of many countries, and also answer the question in terms of what it means for Ministry of Finance as well and the Treasury here.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, on the on the centralization, decentralisation issue, um, I, uh, I I agree. It is uh, ultimately technology is a tool, and it's a matter of how uh, how and where it's deployed. Um, India has always played this tug of war, Uh, and I don't know that that's necessarily unique to India um, between degrees of centralization and degrees of decentralization. But I think what is unique perhaps uh, to some degree in India is that the the problem of service delivery was very much framed as a problem of excessive discretion. Uh, and lack of accountability at the front lines of where service delivery actually takes place. And in, in more ways than one, I mean, you know, the sort of framework of why is it that we are not able to ensure that, uh, you know, f- food for work programs or cash for work programs actually deliver benefits? Why are we not able to ensure that teachers show up to schools? Why are we not able to ensure that health centers actually, the, the, the works, right? And a lot of that was, Uh, is attributed not completely for for wrong reasons to the nature of the grassroots state the degrees of discretion and the degrees of discretion deployed very much in terms of being entrenched in a. Uh, patronage, uh, a state society dynamic that essentially delivers to vested interests of elites and not vested interests to all, or not interests of all. And it's in that context that sort of technology comes in, uh, as a sort of magic bullet possibility. And, 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 and it's framed in an understanding of a problem as something that needs to take away discretion from the front lines in order to be able to deliver well. That's the problem. So to me, actually, I guess the right way to frame this is technology can be centralizing. An inner, in a, inner in a state structure where the state society dynamic or the state society compact around accountability is very much a compact of accountability framed as curbing discretion. Uh, And and, I mean, yesterday there were a couple of IAS officers from India in the room. I don't see them here today, but they will completely disagree with me. uh, uh, You know, curbing discretion is in their minds at the heart of what we need to do. And, And I believe that that flies in the face of a lot of evidence that we do have in India, where you actually see robust decentralization states like Kerala. Lekha is here. She studied this. Uh, more than most, uh, you actually are able to demonstrate the most powerful kinds of effective service delivery where technology then becomes deployed as a useful tool that cuts transaction costs, that improves transparency, all the good cool things that technology does. When technology is deployed in a vacuum of 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 a broken state, which has generated a politics of accountability that is about discretion curbing, that's when the worst of its predatory and centralizing tendencies can come to the fore and I, all I'm trying to say is that in the discourse of efficiency and good governance, let's not forget what that can do. There are trade-offs. There's a trade-off between the messiness of grassroots democratic accountability and the clean efficiency of what a DBT can do or what digitization can do. And we'll have to learn to live with a little bit of both, but you know, we're not having that conversation enough. I guess that, that's why I wanted to sort of provo- throw that in as a provocation. Otherwise you will always hear the really great stories of this massive digital tra- transformation that has taken place. And, you know, it is and it's also worth asking, by the way, how is it that a country that has still not been able to invest well in high quality schools and high and education? We talked a lot yesterday about human capital investments and India has failed routinely at that, even though it produces some of the best engineers in the world. How is it that we were able to do this massive technology transformation and we still can't do those two things. It's a it's it, it's politics, but it's also very much about how that politics has shaped our understandings of the state and what we invest. Thank you
0: so much. Okay. Sovereign answer and very insightful. Over to you, Mike.
3: Thanks. Um there's a lot of questions, so um, let me try and answer them directly. I am delighted mm-hmm. that you're giant program is working really well. <laughs> um, I hope when you talk about giant, you mean the 170 million people plus in Nigeria to forgive me. We work with um Edo State and Benin City, so I only have a small part. So <laughs> forgive me. Uh, I don't know enough about your system, so I don't mean to be provocative. That is a giant population that is a in West Africa giant country and, and things it doesn't necessarily mean that the spending on when I say big it doesn't mean like hundreds of millions of pounds on servers and licenses and lock in vendors. That's the difference So when I talk about big it I don't mean about big outcomes. I mean, big capital investments in proprietary technology that lock you into one way of doing something. So I'll give you an example. In the UK, we started a number of platforms. So don't think about a a system interoperability platforms one of them is called govuk pay one is govuk notify i just looked at the stats on my phone there's 923 live services on govuk pay in this country 4.1 billion going annually through that that is a if you like a giant outcome and yet the team that was on that was about 16 people and with an open standard and this is the key thing it's hard to for so people who've not yourself, but for people in ministries who've come up with like I need I am in government, therefore government is big, therefore I need a big system. It's hard to understand that actually you don't need that. You need a small number of people working on an open standard at scale to drive those outcomes. You need a lot of other things as well. So sometimes big can work. But you know, even NASA and other people don't often work in that big way anyway. So I hope your big outcomes or giant outcomes are more of an open standard. Um, payroll systems. You need payroll systems, it's just sort of the same answer. You just don't need, as we've done in this country, to spend billions of pounds on them all over the place in government. You just need relatively modestly priced ones that work. And it's this ability, this willingness to give away large scale contracts give away the data in those contracts, not have a a, price, a pricing model that's understood. The whole thing is opaque to say the least. And then you say, oh, well, it's not working as well as I hoped it would. The economies have scaled, just to digress. Technology, com- commodity type technology, payrolls is a good example, for the half-life is about just over 12 months. So if you buy some now, 12 months from now, it should be half the cost, roughly. If you buy hosting from Amazon, like you'll, roughly, that's a good model. And yet government (laughs) buys five to 10 year contracts for payroll systems and puts an inflationary measure on them. Right? That's the difference I'm talking about. So yes, you need those systems payroll pay HR. But if you look around the world, look in Canada, they have something called Phoenix, it's their payroll and HR system, it hasn't worked for a decade. And I think they've just put another 4 billion in to try and get it to work. Like, at what point do you stop digging? In, In Australia, they have a thing called Robo debt, same problem. So there are many, many examples like this. This is what I'm talking about. Yes, you need a system, but actually what you need is something quite lightweight that can change quite quickly rather than the big .IT contract behind it. Um, I've got to come two things: Govtech, Govtech. I have no idea what that means. Uh, GovTech is a terrible, terrible phrase, because what I think what some people some people mean by it is, it's like the the name for the old model of buying big IT but just with a new name on right (laughs) doesn't mean anything because tech for gov is like so what It's like someone said here it's like, it's about people it's about service delivery and so on. Um, Sorry to be so cynical but I've heard so much about govtech it's a really unhelpful place to start I think. I've got to come to your question. Are you from the UK? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, we could talk about this all day and we're not going to. Um, (laughs) What what does um, essentially, from a skills and cultural approach, HMT, you're you in Treasury, or were you in Treasury? But it's just not fit for purpose because you're just not hiring people with an understanding and worldview of what can be delivered deliberately that is a deliberate move so in the UK in 2010 help me out we had a the government's flagship policy the closing government was called universal credit massive reform of the benefit system old victorian system all parties agreed has got to be reformed the policy policy was i kid you not that big it was two ring binders <clears throat> And it had been written by your colleagues in uh, HMT and DWP. And it said, you know, in the future, this will happen this one. And then it's like, here you go. Deliver that (laughs) half a billion pounds later. Absolutely zero outcome ditched the whole thing. Right now, at that point, a self-aware organization might just say, you know, we might be the problem here, but oh, no. Well, let's not in Treasury,
4: Treasury. let's
3: I tell you what, the problem is, we didn't buy enough big IT, right. So if you ask me, which you have done, like what very politely, what do what's the magic way of reforming finance ministries? I think there at the sort of existential question, like, before we talk about how we change you, let's talk about like, why on earth are you in the position to make these decisions? That's the fundamental problem. Like I took the under thirties out of the Treasury for a day out. This is true. Like most of them under thirty, with a minder. And I went around there about about, about this number of people. I said, you know, who's on Instagram? Who's on who's this is in twenty fifteen? Who's on WhatsApp? They're like, what's that? i was like where do we find you from like do you, do you do you go out at a weekend like have you got any friends i mean i, I am mean, being first of all it's like that like that, that willingness to have a, such a narrow approach like I, I mean i remember in in sort of one of one of my colleagues from treasury i do have friends i do like that came over to gds in the budget renewal and exasperated after universal credit just said what are you for to in, in front of them. I said modernity you know it's like we live in the internet era this is like we invented the web 30 years ago this isn't new and it was that sort of sense of like we just don't understand how the world works anymore And I'm afraid I have got to come to that, that point where And I was talking to oh, Laura like separating finance from trade macroeconomic theory Macroeconomic views of the world is vital much more. I mean, I work with Mariana Mazzucato and others. People thinking that way are fantastically much better than me and necessary. But they're not great for in-year financial decisions. I think what technology and what digitization has done has show that these are actually two worlds. And if you co-locate them, I don't think you get the best of either. So you get some great people doing their best. But without the data and without this can this abstraction, without this connection to real world users. And I think that's the problem. I think there's not a cookie cutter because every country is different, but I think you've got to separate those two things. Here endeth the lecture. There's a lot of lot of yeah. pain here. Um,
0: so we have Come to our end. There is, uh, I just want to mention one question line from our managing director from ODI, Ratin Roy, and I think it's very actually related to what you just said. Why is that uh, ICT conspicuously fails to bring efficiency to public uh, service delivery, even in rich countries? Why the UK NHS still sends Paper letters to patients have records that are not interoperable, but it works much better for um, cash transfers and delivering money to people. Um, I think we have discussed uh, some of this already. Uh, So, writing that you are online, I hope you are happy with the food for thought we have and that we actually, I think it is to some extent because of how institutions are organized. Mm -hmm. A lack of knowledge and dynamism uh, among many of us and people <laughs> in government uh, and also political uh, will and decisions. and yeah we we can continue discussing over lunch, thank you so much to all our speakers and to you.